Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Imogen Hitchings on the topic The King with a Pope in His Belly. This October 2010 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. I'm just hoping I can do justice to the talk tonight. Um, so just bear with me. Save your questions for the end. Now, the book, um, this is a, a very new book, and I'll just show it to you. The title might seem very strange. It's very small, The King with the Pope in His Belly. And it's basically about the Reformation, starting with Henry VIII, who was responsible for the Reformation. Um, it comes from a quote by a very famous writer, Francis Cardinal Gasquet, Gasquet, who wrote extensively on the Reformation, and that was one of his quotes. So it's about Henry VIII who decided to swallow the Pope, but he swallowed the wrong thing because it gave him a lot of bellyache. And unfortunately, it was the beginning of a most horrendous period of time which is stretched into our own century and is probably the cause of a lot of troubles we have today, both secular and religious. And I mean secular, I'm talking about the state the world is in, the banks, what we're going through right now, the depressions. That's all come to us as a result of one person who was joined by several other brigands, and I'll mention them as I go along. So the Reformation really is not just about Henry VIII, but it's about a group of Catholics around the world at that time, Europe I'm speaking of, who if they had stood on their own two feet and if they had developed a private form of prayer, if they had kept themselves strong in the faith, this would never have happened. And it's a lesson to us, no matter how wicked the world is out there, no matter how hopeless the situation is, God has his finger on the pulse. But he will not aid us if we ourselves are rotten on the inside. So the people I speak about, the reason for the Reformation or any other evil movement, is because the people who are involved in it have long since given up their faith and only have, as it were, a pretense. They pray, they go to church, and in all the outward ex outwardness of their faith, they appear to be good people. But the only reason and the only way the devil can come into our society and affect it so drastically is because he has the cooperation of the human beings involved. So if you just keep that in mind, we will understand the folly of the human race. That when victory of a material kind is in sight, they'll do everything in their power to lower the standards of Christ and end up stamping on him and crucifying him over and over again. First I'll talk about the author, uh, Bella Wyborn de Brera. And this is the first book of three. It's a trilogy. Very easy to read. When I picked it up, I couldn't put this down. It was like reading a detective novel. 
although I had done, I, I have done quite a bit of research on this period of time, the authoress has a wonderful way of writing. It's very clear, straight to the point. Uh, it just doesn't muck around with anybody or anything. And she's taken this book goes from the beginning of Henry's trouble until his death. That's the first part. And the second and the third parts are soon to follow. I think she's actually finished writing them all, but this is the first one. Bella has a history. Um, she's a niece of mine, so you might think, oh, you know, I'm prejudiced. Well, in a sense I am, but our father, my brothers, my brother and my sister and myself grew up with a father who actually loved history. And growing up in the, in the, as, as my brother says, one of the British Isles, or the Commonwealth as it was called, History, as you studied it in primary school, was always about England. English literature, Shakespeare, what, everything that, that, fit, that fitted in to that particular climate is what we grew up on. And I was just telling one of the ladies here that it was absolutely wonderful to be able to pick up this book and I was reading it through and I just, you know, I, I just gasped because it, one of the phrases in this, as soon as I read it, I had a quick picture of my father saying it. And it was wonderful to know that his words and his enthusiasm for history and English, his excitement about about all these things has come down through the generations, through the third generation, and produced Bella. Now Bella did her qualifying degree in Monash University in arts, in fine arts, qualifying in Spanish and Italian, modern and ancient languages. So she's very well equipped to study this period of time. Then she went on to Salamanca in Spain and did six months at the University of Salamanca and she finished, she, um, she completed the arts degree at Monash in Salamanca and then she went to St Andrews in Scotland where she did her, her masters and then on to Cambridge University where she did her PhD. She finished, after she finished at Cambridge she went to Lancaster University for a term or two as a lecturer and then went back to Cambridge to lecture in history. She's also helped to write some scripts for the BBC and she was in here in Australia doing uh, or checking on, on a program that was being produced by the BBC, an Australian version of a particular program, a comedy they have in England. This is her second book. When she was 14 she wrote her first story for children. She was going to write more and more stories for children but that was so far the one and only one. But she has written another book apart from this one and it's called... Um, Get it right. Maybe it's in here. It's right. She's the author of The Tribunal of Zaragoza and Crypto Judaism in the period of time from 1484 to 1515. That was that was printed written this year as well. It's been printed this year. So she's actually also recognised as one of either one of or the expert in on the Spanish Inquisition. She's been able to study the Spanish medieval languages. She was studying a part, uh, she was working in the research at Catalonia in Spain and she found in a little village there that they couldn't, she couldn't find the records of the village and she found that Napoleon, wherever he went in any part of Europe or the world, he, he, he pinched all the written records of the different villages and took them back to Paris. So she went back to Paris and finished her research there, researching to, uh, she's, she's very gifted linguist, so she's able at least to do the, all that. So her book, I won't, uh, without any more ado, there's a photograph of her here. I don't know if you've seen it. My daughter took this in London a few years ago. That's Bella.
Now, I'm going to start with her preface. I've been looking through, I've tried to take a, a list of all the different articles and books and things that she has she has in here in her in her files, you know, all the things that she's looked up. She's also responsible for the sketches, all the sketches of all the different people, apart from the one at the back, are all hers. You now, based on other, you can have a look at this later. Now, I'm going to give you both these quotes because now I've got a couple of books that she has. They're quite. This one is William Cobbett, and it's called A History of the Protestant Reformation in England and Ireland. And this one is the rise, the rise and growth of the Anglican Schism. It's a reprint by Reverend Dr. Nicholas Sander. This is a book that was published, written and published at the time of the Reformation. It was anyone caught with a copy of this in England was instantly jailed and punished because this story is the truth behind the Reformation. It is the truth as to why Henry married Anne Boleyn. And it's quite horrendous. I'll get onto that soon. But I wanted to actually give you a little bit of information about William Cobbett lived in the 18th century. He was an ordinary Englishman. He had he couldn't even write, couldn't even read. 18th. 18th century, 1700s he lived. And he taught himself to read. He taught himself to write. He read prolifically and investigated. He's the most amazing writer. This particular book has a, a preface by Cardinal Gasquet, who, to whom we owe that quotation. And he has a lot of respect for this man, who was made fun of by his own people. He, he never ever converted to Catholicism. He died a Protestant, but he has done some amazing work, and he has built, or said a lot of his work, built on this book. So, we'll get started. Wait, I think. Sorry, William Cobbett based a lot of his information on the rise and growth of the Anglican Schism. Bella uses a quote by William Cobbett. Now, my friends, a fair and honest inquiry will teach us that this Reformation was an alteration greatly for the worse, that the Reformation, as it is called, was engendered in lust brought forth in hypocrisy and perfidy, and cherished and fed by plunder, devastation, and by rivers of innocent English and Irish blood, and that as to its more remote consequences, they are, some of them, now before us, that misery, that beggary, that nakedness, that hunger, that everlasting wrangling and spite, which now stare us in the face, and stun our years at every turn, and which the Reformation has given us in exchange for the ease and happiness and harmony and Christian charity enjoyed so abundantly and for so many ages by our Catholic forefathers. The so-called Reformation in England was a terrible thing. It was terrible because it cut England off from a millennium and a half of spiritual and cultural equipoise with such severity that 450 years later, the country has yet to recover from its spiritual torpor. This momentous and violent revolution, which swept indiscriminately through town and country, began in 1534 when the Tudor king, Henry VIII, thumbed his nose at the papacy 
and arbitrarily seized the Vicar of Christ's authority over all English Christians. It was continued by his illegitimate children, the boy Edward, 1537 to 1553, and later by Elizabeth, Elizabeth I, 1533 to 1603, whose anti-Catholic propaganda campaign and reign of terror almost completely obliterated ancient Catholicism from England. By the time of the reign of the Stuart King, Charles I, 1625 to 1649, England's Catholic past was all but a distant memory. The revolutionaries' labours had certainly paid off. The fact that the English populace had been on the whole happily Catholic for over 1,000 years was erased from its collective memory. Even in this day and age of free speech, to confess that one is both English and a Catholic is somewhat akin to admitting, to admitting culpable treason. This revolution was remarkable for two reasons. Firstly, it was conceived within the highest strata of English society and was a state-sponsored and state-imposed revolution. Secondly, it had no support from the English populace at large, who by all accounts were perfectly content with the status quo ante. There was no popular <coughs> uprising which demanded that the king declare himself supreme head of the church in England. There was never a call to Englishmen to rally against the church. What the Tudors did, therefore, was gratuitous, arbitrary and despicable. Henry VIII forcibly tore his loyal subjects from their Catholic communion with Rome. And less than 30 years later, his daughter Elizabeth I compounded this heinous act by taking away from them their entire precious and ancient faith. She violently imposed upon them a nationalised version of fatally Paris Protestantism, which had been newly imported from Germany. Thus was established the state religion of Anglicanism. The father of Protestantism was none other than the renegade Catholic Augustinian friar and priest Martin Luther. Most readers will no doubt be familiar with the Martin Luther of popular legend, the courageous and brilliant reformer, the shining light and fearless crusader, who bravely stood up to the corruption of the church and selflessly restored her to a fondly imagined pristine state. There is, however, a vast chasm in this case between this fantastical myth and the wretched reality of the historical Martin Luther. She goes on to talk about Martin Luther. He was, I don't think you realise, the most immoral man, extremely immoral man. He became a priest not because he felt any God-given inspiration to become one, but because he had decided he wanted to be a priest, and that was that. He argued with the with the prior of the monastery that he was going to be a priest and he overruled the prior's decision. It's interesting. So he became a priest. However, in turn, he became an apostate and a heretic, an irascible, intolerant and immoral individual who set himself up in opposition to Jesus Christ in a supreme act of defiance and disobedience. He might well have begun his public career under the guise of a reformer, but he ended up a contumacious rebel who set into motion a social and religious revolution which rent the Catholic world permanently asunder and whose effects are painfully evident even today in the morally defunct 
post-Christian societies of the modern world. An important point to keep in mind in any discussion of this wretched anti-Catholic and immoral revolution is the fact that its fomenter was himself a baptized and professed Catholic. This may come as a surprise to people who might still be laboring under the delusion that Luther had always been a crypto-Protestant and was simply waiting for the right opportunity to come out of his monkish cell. But before Luther, there were neither crypto-Protestants nor crypto-Lutherans nor crypto-Episcopalians because the only Christians were Catholics, either Latin or Oriental. Neither the Catholic nor Byzantine worlds were by any means perfect, but Catholic nonetheless, and therefore universal. In 1478, Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand had revived the Holy Office of the Inquisition in Spain as the only means by which to extirpate the crypto-Jewish threat from Castile and Aragon. Later, on January 2, 1492, while Luther was still a schoolboy, Spain finally freed herself from the yoke of seven centuries of Islamic occupation. When Barbadil surrendered Granada to Los Reos Católicos, just eight months later, these remarkable monarchs took a chance on an enigmatic sailor of disputed nationality named Christopher Columbus and financed his now famous westward voyage of expedition. With Columbus, Catholicism arrived in the New World. Meanwhile, in Italy, the fiercely ascetic but unbalanced Dominican friar, Girolamo Savonarola, launched a fire and brimstone assault upon what he perceived to be the widespread depravity of the curia and worldliness of the popes. Savonarola managed to unveil the citizens of Florence into throwing their pornographic and pagan books into his bonfire of the vanities in the Piazza del Signore, Signoria. But those same Florentines, soon tired of Savonarola, sorry, Savonarola, and in 1493, burnt him as well in that very fiery pizza. That very pizza, sorry, piazza. <laughs> well, you need a bit of humor somewhere there. <laughs> in, in his tumultuous world was Martin Luther born. And like every other Christian since the apostles, Luther was born and bred a Catholic. That's something that not people, many people think about. I was talking to a Church of England man the other day and saying, you know, if you trace your ancestry, which would be back to England, he was English descent, I said, you'll find that you come from Catholic stock. But pre-Reformation, there weren't any other religions apart from Catholicism, Mohammedism, and the Asian religions which, which people had, of course, not got to as yet. So, as a young man with his free will perfectly intact, this is uh, Martin Luther, he took off his shoes and imprudently demanded to be made a friar at the Augustinian monastery in the local town of Augsburg. Not content with the friary, Luther was ordained in the priesthood in 1507, later enrolling at the University of Wittenberg, where he completed a doctorate in theology. Luther's obligations, therefore, were in keeping with his life choices as a monk and priest. As a doctor of theology, he was obliged to teach, uphold and defend the church's doctrines, all of which he knew and formally accepted as being objectively true. However, somewhere along his ambitious journey, Luther began to regret his decision to become a monk and the rigorous obligations that the enclosed life entailed. His monastic views were becoming unpalatable as it appeared that monastic existence was not all that it was wanted to be. Serious fault lines had begun to appear in the facade of what was already an unstable vocation. And he began to manifest signs of mental instability, swinging wildly from one extreme to another while abandoning the safe harbour of the obligatory recitation for his daily office. 
the deliberate neglect of which he knew to be a mortal sin, for weeks, then racked with the ensuing guilt and consumed by paroxysms of remorse, he would lock himself in his cell, deprive himself of food and sleep for weeks on end. During this period of unhealthy introspection, Brother Martin began to develop some very peculiar ideas about basic Catholic teaching on sin, forgiveness, redemption and salvation. Why am I talking about Martin Luther? Because Martin Luther's religion is what became the Anglican religion. That's what they used instead of the Catholic religion. That was what replaced Catholicism by a man whose adherents today say he was a wonderful saint. I think there was a film made about his life a couple of years ago, wasn't there? Yeah. I deliberately stayed away from it because I knew it wouldn't be true. Uh, I wouldn't have any vestige of truth in it. Beneath the surface of this cry, there simmered an unstable amalgam of self-loathing, irrationality and morbid scrupulosity waiting to erupt. In Luther's mind, God became a vengeful Old Testament God, a God who delighted in pitilessly smiting down his children with a lightning rod. In his reminiscences, Luther, Luther wrote, From misplaced reliance on my righteousness, my heart became full of distrust, doubt, fear, hatred and blasphemy of God. I was such an enemy of Christ that whenever I saw an image or a picture of him hanging on his cross, I loathed the sight. And I shut my eyes and felt that I would rather have seen the devil. Luther became a victim of his own scrupulosity, regarding himself above all as a miserable sinner, and believing that the only way to appease this wrathful God was by his own righteousness or servile works. Characteristically of this apparent schizophrenic, Luther then changed his mind, saying that if one whipped oneself a hundred times a day with an appropriate scourge, such a deity would still remain eternally in a state of apoplectic rage. Man, he proclaimed, should cease trying to be good because it would not help him. It would not help save him from the fires of hell. Be a sinner if you like, and sin boldly, he pontificated. But believe, these are his own words, but believe still more boldly and rejoice in Christ who is the conqueror of sin. From the man who takes away the sins of the world, sin will not separate men, even though they commit impurity a thousand times a day and murder as often. Thus it comes as no surprise that this liberal license in Christ's name, allowing no one to do whatever one wanted or with anyone at any time, would be met with much rejoicing. Luther was later to further develop his early delusional attempt to escape from his erroneous perception of divine judgment and retribution by formulating one of three fundamental principles of his new religion, which he entitled Justification by Faith Alone. Little by little, as his confidence grew, Luther took the fundamental doctrines of Catholicism and turned them on their heads. And in 1520, he was formally excommunicated from the Church and declared a heretic on the grounds of 41 scandalous errors with which he opposed Catholic truth. Spurred on by a rapturous audience of liberals, Luther's reaction was to burn the papal bull of excommunication as well as to consign the works of St. Thomas Aquinas to the flames for good measure. The new outlaw had now publicly separated himself and a significant proportion of the Catholic world from the bark of Peter, the mystical body of Christ, setting himself and his followers adrift upon a heterodox and a fragile raft into a violent ocean of discord and despair. So, that was the beginning or the background to the English Reformation. Now, as you know, and you might wonder, how on earth did Henry VIII, who wrote and was rewarded by the Pope with the title Defender of the Faith, 
for defending the seven sacraments which Luther tore to pieces. How on earth could a person like that who defended the seven sacraments and was awarded a prize for it, how could he in turn destroy this beautiful faith? Destroy England. For those of you who aren't aware of the fact that England has been or had been a country so totally Catholic, Catholic for 1,400 years, she had been the true daughter of Rome. So much so that she was given the title The Dowry of Our Lady. I knew that since I was a little child. My mother told me that long years ago that England was always known as the Dowry of Our Lady. It was very Marian. The people loved Our Lady. They still do. And a lot of them, even though they may have changed their faith. I have a friend, my mother's friend was uh, Methodist when the Methodist religion was still in vogue. She, still, she had the rosary. She said the rosary. She used to say the rosary because that was what her mother said. And we found that quite a few Methodists, and the, the founder of Methodism, what was his name? Um, Wesley. Yeah, Wesley, thank you, thank you, Stephen. Wesley, they still, I've read somewhere in an English magazine, he used to say the rosary every day. And they still have his set of rosary beads. So, you know, when you say people in England have wonderful manners, they're very polite, they're thoughtful. These are all the remnants of Catholicism which bred a most wonderful people. They were wild, the Saxons. They came from Saxon stock, from different, different stock, and amalgamated into this wonderful nation. There was no poverty in England, none whatsoever. The poverty was unheard of. Poverty only came into existence at the Reformation. And it is said in a lot of these books here, it is said that the Reformation really, Cardinal Gasquet says, that it's really all about the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. It was the triumph of the wealthy. That's all the Reformation really was. You come to things like when somebody was thrown into jail for disobeying the rules of, well, the law of England. One of the laws they made was they outlawed, they outlawed the Holy Mass. And anyone caught at a Mass, and especially anyone caught saying the Mass, then had to suffer a traitor's death and punishment because any law and any chief law held by the country, if that is broken, if you deliberately break a law, an important law of your nation, you are then held liable, you, are, uh, you become a traitor. And so the only punishment for you, if you don't recant, is a traitor's death. And a traitor's death in England at this time, it had, had been before the Reformation, very few people were, were traitors before the Reformation. And so this particular death was very rare. Usually it was hanging. But a traitor's death was more than just hanging. You were hung by the neck till you were almost dead. Then your body was taken down, still alive, and you were cut open from the neck down. And your 
in innards, your stomach and your all your whatever your innards were, are pulled out and burned on a fire. You were still alive because your heart was still beating. And the last thing they did was to pull the heart out. Then the body was cut into four quarters and boiled. And then each quarter sent to four parts of the of the of the, of the country as a sign that if you continue to be disobedient, this is what would happen to you. The head was stuck on a trader's gate, a special gate where the heads were stuck on in spikes. When they beheaded um, that wonderful saint, St. Thomas Aquinas, not St. Thomas More's companion, John Fisher, thank you, brother. Fisher was a very old man and very, very thin. He hardly ate, he, he ate especially towards the end of his life. He was almost skin and bone when they, when they executed him. They put his head on the gate. He was a man of late 70s. Well, the head started to get younger. His hair grew, changed colour to back to when he was a young man. His features changed and it just grew crowds of hundreds. And the soldiers were so, they were so furious, they just took his head down and tossed it into the, into the Thames River. So, this was the punishment you were faced with, and also unlimited amount of time in the Tower of London. We know that the Carthusian friars were the very first priests to give their lives for this cause. They were tortured unmercifully. Their arms pulled out of their sockets. Edmund Campion had the same, same thing happen to him. But then these men were chained to the walls of the tower, prison. Now, some of the parts, the tower actually has the river... Thames goes through it. It goes through parts of the tower and in the dungeons and below. So they hung them from manacles in the walls just high enough to be a little bit free from the water. So they, their feet would have been in water about this much and the river rats would come in and chew them. Chew their, their skin and their flesh are still alive. So these were the wonderful things that awaited you if you turned down the invitation to join the Anglican religion. But let's have a look at the way it came into, into being. Father Gasket goes into a lot of detail here about, um, about the different ways, or the, the whole, it's not enough. I just deal quickly with a bit of the devastation of England, the poverty. It, it was never a poor country. It had everything, everyone had everything they needed. A knight, a young man working in the fields could become a knight if he improved himself, if he, he joined the king's archers and went, because they never had a standing army like we have today. The army was selected from the peasants and they were very good with bows and arrows so they brought their own tools with them and they could just become knights as they grew, as they grew up or if they wanted to become anything more than just a farmer, they could. They could rise to the position of a knight. And if you read uh, the stories of King Arthur and his very famous knights, you come across some wonderful Catholic expressions that we have today, like breakfast. Breakfast, the word breakfast means breaking your fast. What fast? Catholics today wouldn't even know what you're talking about. The fast from midnight. Anyone who needed to receive our Lord in Holy Communion had to fast from bread and water from midnight. I remember that fast when I was a child. At the age of seven, we used to walk 
a couple of miles to Mass. We used to get up very early, and before my Holy Communion, I was allowed to eat. My sister and my two brothers were not, and we had to walk miles to get to Mass. After which, Mom, my mother always took some sort of food with her, and then we had to walk in a different direction to spend the morning with, this is when my father was overseas, with one of my, my mother's friends. And we had, I remember having to cross over a railway bridge that was made just only for the trains. There were no side passages where you can, you could, like, you know, people walking could walk. You had to walk on the boards. Those pieces of wood, what they call them? The sleepers. Yes, that's right, thanks. You had to walk on the sleepers, and I still remember my mum's old friend with the rosary beads, I think mum had rosary beads too, saying, oh my God, oh my dear Jesus, oh dear Jesus, please get us across this bridge. So she could fall through. And there was a, uh, an amazingly fast-flowing river beneath at your feet. That was what our Sundays were like. I remember going through the streets of, this is in Salon, walking through the streets of, and there were bullet carts and all sorts of things, you know, we'd cross over then and walk what seemed for absolutely ages. I remember looking at my, shoot, my sister's feet one day and she had two, she, had, she was wearing these Clark shoes and, and they were similar colours, so she had one shoe on each foot from a different pair. I remember that quite clearly in my mind, that she was so, it was so dark when we got up in the morning, she must have just grabbed what she could and put them on her feet. But people these days are spoiled. You know, we can only fast for an hour if we have to, but not from midnight. And so with these restrictions in mind, uh, the English people were a wonderfully steadfast bunch. They refused to give in. There's a story somewhere um, where the, de um, the farmers of Devon, in Devonshire, in Elizabeth the first time, went to plead with the Queen for their mass. That's all they really wanted. They wanted their mass back. And the Queen recruited, because she couldn't find any man in, in England to fight for her to kill these men. She pretended that they were uprising to kill her, and she managed to get some German people together to, become, to have the German men come across to England and she lied to them and told them there were, these, there were these men who were rising against her to kill her. So she sent a German army in to kill her own people. And it's recorded that even in today's time, the farmers of that district still come across human bones. Every single farmer was wiped out. Then there was a northern arising by the, by the earls of, of the Norse, the most strongly Catholic were the northern Englishmen. And those uprisings were also put down with violence. The main uh, organisers were hung from the church steeples and left hanging from the church steeples. So their bodies rotted away. And this is, this is what they call the Reformation. But the worst part of the Reformation was the penury, the poverty that was forced on the English people. They lived mainly in villages, as I think most of the world did in those days, surrounded by the village church, the, the, the church and the monastery. Now, the, the monks owned the land, and they rented their land to the people to till it and to, as their form of keeping themselves in body and soul. So they tilled the land, and they paid a certain amount to the monks. Now the money was taken by the monks and it was put into educating the children in the village. So schools were set up, hospitals were set up to look after those that were sick and old. 
Pensions were given to the old people who had no means of work, and therefore no means of any sort of income, except what they could get from their children. And so the old were looked after, the young were looked after, the people on the land were looked after, they were educated, the monks, of course, there was no printing in the, I'm talking about days before printing came into existence, and they spent a lot of their time, the king had, the king had a lot of venison, a lot of deer, because paper was quite rare. Deer hide was what was used, and if you go to England today, you can still find records going back to 1066 and even before that, of all the pipe rolls. The pipe rolls were what were used by the, by, um, by the kings to keep a record of all their um, groceries, you know what I'm talking about, how many. So we still have those lists, household lists, of what the king spent on his people. And so we come from a very ordered, quiet, peaceful society to this terrible eruption of evil which spread from London right through England. It took a few hundred years, but it spread by force. The other horrible thing that happened in England was this. Now, as you know or don't know, the, there were no banks in England in those days. Banks did not exist. The king was the bank. In the king reposed all authority and all funding, money, was the king's. And he was the one who then planned it very wisely. Now, King Henry VII, Henry VIII's father, was a very wise man. I wouldn't wise, but he was very, um, sorry, he was very careful about money. And he left the kingdom extremely wealthy for Henry when he took over. But Henry was an unbridled person. His passions came first. His will came first. And it actually is recorded here by one of these books that the king warned that his son would ruin the nation if he was given his own way. Because Henry was the youngest son. He was eight years younger than his older brother Arthur. So when Henry decided, Henry ran through, he just worked his way through without a problem, through all the money his father had built up, through wars, through giving extravagant parties to all his cronies by bribing people. He ran out of money. So his crony, Thomas Cromwell, decided he'd help the king by a lovely suggestion. Why don't we absorb the monastic lands? Excuse me, is this before... Um, so we haven't run through the progression of... No, I'm not going through the progression. Sorry, sorry. Uh, yeah. I'm just trying to give you an overall, just a very quick picture of what had happened after the Reformation. Oh, right. Because I don't want to use... Because I think you need to, everyone needs to have this in a book. Now, I don't want to spoil it too much by telling you everything that's in there because it's very, very quite exciting reading. But just to try and give you a picture, because people don't know that there was no poverty in England and maybe they don't also know, it is not just tradition, but it is fact that St. Joseph of Arimathea, when he accompanied uh, Lazarus, Mary, Magdalene and Martha from Israel, they went to France. Mary Magdalene's body is still in France. Her head is in one chapel and the remainder of her body is in another church in France. 
They were very wealthy people, but when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, they left and they, they took themselves off to France and Joseph of Arimathea went to England, where our Lord had revealed to him, he carried a staff of thorn, which, and our Lord, our Lord had revealed to him that when he put that into the ground and it flourished as a tree, he would know that was the place that he wanted it to be. So in today's present day, Glastonbury was where Joseph settled down. And over time, he taught people to be, to be monks. He taught them how to be ascetics, how to pray. And he lived in the wild, in the trees, in the oak trees, and built himself rude shacks. So, but he was so revered that eventually a huge monastery was built on that site, but a, a small church to start off with, and he was buried under the, in the floor of the church. Later on, his body was removed from under the floor and taken up and put into um, a proper grave under the altar. When Henry decided on Thomas Cromwell's instigation, the first step he took was to destroy every single holy place of pilgrimage. The place in Glastonbury where St. Joseph of Arimathea was buried was so renowned that one of the early Saxon kings, King Ine, had the walls of the chapel lined with pure silver to pay respect to the man who gave his tomb to Jesus Christ. And this was the devotion the English had towards their faith. It's only, I'm going to tell you a couple of little stories here and there, but when Henry decided he needed some more money, the first place he attacked before the monasteries were the shrines. The holy shrine of St. Thomas of Becket, we are told, was stripped bare. And there was so much plunder. It had been the place everyone came there, and there were so many miracles at his request that people came back and they gave some votive offerings of gold or jewels or something, whatever they could afford. The King of France, King Louis, sent apparently a, a huge ruby to this, uh, to this uh, place to thank St. Thomas for a cure that he had arranged, well, through, but, you know, through the power of God. King Henry took that ruby and made it into himself, made it, had it made into a ring. Apparently they took 27 cartloads of jewels and precious things from the tomb of Thomas the Becket alone. They pulled out all the bodies of the saints and broke them to bits and set them on fire. St. Cuthbert's body, when the monks heard that they were coming, they quickly took St. Cuthbert's body out of his burial place because he was perfect, perfectly intact, and they put the body of a, uh, just a recently dead monk in his place because they knew that they were going to tear the body to bits when they came. The monks were taken, the monasteries were taken over, the land was taken over and repossessed and then given to all Henry and Thomas Cromwell's cronies. So the rich became richer and the poor became poorer. And this went on for quite a long time. When a man was in the Tower of London and his fate was imminent, well, his lands were already being argued over as to who they were going to give it to. His wife and children were beggared and they said a good fortune to be taken over by someone else and looked after. I'm trying to put it into practical purposes that we can feel in touch because this is, if we just put ourselves in this position, just just the Reformation was just so horrendous. The effects of it are still there today. My niece went to 
Westminster Cathedral, no, Abbey's, the one that the Protestants have is the Abbey. Isn't that right? Westminster Abbey? She took this book to Westminster Abbey. They were not interested. That's the Catholic side. And yet just recently, it was noted in the Times newspaper in November, I think it was of last year, that the Westminster Choir sang the 50 praises of Allah in Westminster Cathedral, Cathedral, Westminster Cathedral. And they had invited a lot of Muslims, important people, to Westminster Cathedral. In the Catholic Cathedral. In the Catholic Cathedral. This is one of these communicable things. It was in the Times. But they refused his book. So the effects of the Reformation, I think, are still there today. Now, please tell me my time limits up. Um, what's the time? Oh, of course, I'm looking in front of me. Ten past nine, five minutes. Um, yeah, we have to allow time for questions, actually. Yes, of course. Um, there's just so much. Now, um, I haven't even spoken about the Queen's. Uh, Elizabeth. Of course, uh, trying to think. Henry had three. Henry had actually five children by his wife, Catherine. He had two boys, or three boys, and two girls. But the only surviving child was Mary. Um, the other children died in infancy, or died shortly. Well, I think the first child died at birth, and he had he had a perfectly normal child by his mistress. Henry led a very dissolute life, and he did what he wanted to at any time he wanted to. His um, Catherine, I haven't got into very much about Catherine, Catherine of Aragon. She was, first of all, she came to England because she was supposed to marry Arthur. Arthur was 15 years of age when he, he married Catherine, but because they were so young, the king had ordered, King Henry VII, that is, had ordered that a, a person of impeccable character, a nurse, be with them right after the wedding. The marriage was never consummated. And that is why Henry was able to get a dispensation to marry Catherine. And that is why the Pope could not, as he said, dispense with the dispensation because the marriage had never become a marriage. Arthur died a few months after this particular, after the marriage. And then Catherine, um, Queen Isabella of Spain, made sure that Henry had to marry Catherine, either that or she had to marry Henry, Henry, Henry VIII, or she would have to be returned to Spain. Now, Henry VII, who was very particular about money, didn't want to get rid of this wonderful, huge dowry, which would have disappeared with Catherine. Not only did he want, not want to get rid of the dowry, but he also demanded more money from Isabella and Ferdinand of Spain, which they gave him. Interesting to note that Henry VII had actually ordered, left orders with Westminster Abbey that they pray for his soul in perpetuity. Well, that didn't last after his son destroyed the Catholic Church. Mm. And so the same thing for many of the cathedrals. Oh, yes, that's right. 
But um, perhaps one thing that not very many people know is the relationship between Henry and Anne Boleyn. Now, it is quite true that Anne Boleyn was not just the wife of Henry VIII, but she was also his daughter. And Henry knew that. Henry was a, was the most um, immoral man. He had had relations with his with Anne Boleyn's mother, Elizabeth Boleyn. Elizabeth was married to Sir Thomas Boleyn. Now Henry sent Thomas away to France on, as an ambassador for three years. And when he returned to England, he found he had another child in his home, which he had not fathered. So he decided to take his wife to the ecclesiastical courts and get a you couldn't get divorced, but you could get an annulment, or, or maybe not even annulment, you could get a separation. He wanted to have a separation. And she begged him, she went down on her knees and begged him not to do this because she said the father of the child was Henry the king. Now, they only had one child and her name was Mary, Mary Boleyn. As Mary grew up, she became um, a lady-in-waiting to Queen Catherine. And she also was seduced by the king. And Mary actually went to Queen Catherine when it looked imminent she was going to be disowned by the king, got rid of. And she said to her, Ma'am, the king cannot divorce you because he has already had relationships with so many women, with me and with my mother. Therefore, he cannot marry Anne. You understand that, don't you? This consanguinity, because you can't marry your your wife's brother because you are already a brother of, I mean, sorry, yes, right, because you're already a sister of his through your marriage, or vice versa. So what I'm trying to say is that here, the king knew. Thomas Boleyn went to the king when he was considering marrying Anne Boleyn and went on his knees begging the king not to marry her because he knew that Anne was his daughter. The king just laughed at him and walked away. So then Thomas knew he had to toe the line. That was a terrible tragedy. And as many things, we can't count on, but that was the state of this king who had won such great potential. And um, does Bella actually um, refer to the sources for all of this? Absolutely. After every single chapter, there's about, well, end notes. There are end notes. Now, anyway, this particular chapter, which is Monk Mary's Nun, it's called. Um, yeah, it's the first chapter. She has 20 notes. 20 references after that particular chapter. Every chapter has its own string of uh, notes. And yes, there's a bit, there's a, you know, uh, can I just tell this thing about uh, Cranmer, Thomas Cranmer, all these Thomas, Thomas Cranmer was chosen by the king to be his, his chief priest. He was a priest, Catholic priest, but he was secretly a Lutheran. And when he was over um, in Germany, he decided to get married. Now Henry had no idea that he was a Lutheran at heart. Henry still respected the Catholic faith. That was a funny thing. And he still believed in the in our Lord's presence in the Blessed Eucharist. And we know that when he was very ill, he almost fell out of his bed to go on his knees before our Lord. 
whom he thought was there in the Vesuvius, but we're not too sure it was, because Thomas Cranmer was his personal priest, and Thomas Cranmer had already, already defected to Lutheranism, and he had no idea of being a Catholic except just to stay on the king's good side. So he married this woman, who apparently was a nun beforehand, and to bring her back to England, unseen by the king, he put her in a box. She travelled in a box. And once the box, box was put into the coach upside down, she nearly, she had, she nearly died. But, they had to, but he had to travel everywhere with his wife in a box. So I mean, funny, it's impossible. But um, that was the length to which Thomas Cranmer went, just to preserve his Catholic priesthood. Um, so the king wouldn't find out. They changed, Cranmer was the one who changed things. He changed the mass, the mass was tampered with, and he changed that into a divine service. He also, but this didn't happen all in one go, it didn't happen with Henry, it happened in Elizabeth's time, because Cranmer was still there when Elizabeth was queen, reigning. So he brought in the English prayer book, which I'm told is a very beautiful, he did write some very beautiful prayers. But that took the place of the missal. Missals were all burned. There was no more mass. There was just Cranmer's book. But that came out later, a lot, lot later, after Henry's death. Cranmer didn't dare show the king that he was not a Catholic. He didn't dare betray the fact that he was a Protestant. Because the king, strangely enough, always considered himself still a Catholic. Even until his death? Even until his death. Well, where did the where did the Lutheran uh, slipover occur? Actually, I'm not too sure. You have to really read this and read it several times. And I read these books, and I read, need to read them. There is so much in there. It came in quite gradually. It came in actually with Anne Boleyn. Now I remember um, Lutheranism. Anne Boleyn grew up. She she was sent to France and grew up in the court of Princess Margaret, who was uh, the sister of the current king, and Margaret was a Lutheran through and through. She had a Lutheran court. And that is where Anne Boleyn grew up and found out how to live as a Lutheran, and she brought this back to England. She was the one who actually brought Lutheranism into the highest court when she married Henry, but Henry still clung to the Mass and the Blessed Eucharist. So she lived outside England? Yes. Yes, she did. And she kept the king waiting. She refused to marry him until he had actually divorced Catherine. So that's probably why he got away with people not knowing that he was that she was his actual daughter. I think it was hushed up. I mean if people knew a lot of people did know, but it became if it became public news, there would have been a terrible outcry by the English people. But people did know. Some yes, for sure. Yes, yeah, some people certainly knew. But Anne, Anne, Anne was determined to give him a son, you know, and poor Anne, I feel very sorry for her, but she just went right to the end of her logical life, I suppose, the way she was living. She was, she was executed, and so were five men whom she had had affairs with, each one of them, including her own brother, because she wanted to produce an heir to the king. A male, and she did produce a child, a boy, so but he was very misshapen and died, or was born dead. I think the child was born dead, and after that, the king had to beheaded. 
So she had these relationships in order to produce an illegitimate heir. She she had been having relationships with people before she even left France, or she was a young girl. Oh, this, this I mean, it's like looking at someone's horror book, but it's very important to know a lot of this because it's been hidden from the Anglicans. And if the Anglicans only know what their church is based on, I'm wondering if they would still remain Anglican. If they've, I don't, I mean, I don't think it'll affect very many Anglicans. I'm sure it won't. But for those who are really sincere, because you can deny all this for as long as you like, but the facts are there. And more and more people are coming to find out about it. Um, I'm just going to read you this here. It's a quote from Cobbett. No reign, no age, no country ever witnessed rapacity, hypocrisy, menace, baseness, perfidy, such as England witnessed it in those who were the destroyers of the Catholic and founders of the Protestant Church. England, so long famed as a land of hospitality, generosity, ease, plenty, became under a Protestant church a sense of repulsive selfishness, rapacity, plunder and tyranny that made the very names of law and justice a mockery. I'd like to end with those because I know I've taken you all around the garden path and haven't stuck to one particular pathway. But a lot of us already know the story. We think we know. We know the outlines of the story. But as to the depth of it, that is not known very much. And I sincerely believe that if the history books were changed, as I mentioned earlier, I love English history. But we grew up with some lies, quite a few. I mean, did you know that the Romans occupied England for 500 years? It's a fact. 500 years they occupied England. And they left only because of the marauding um, hordes that were hovering over Italy and, and trying to attack Rome. So they rushed back. All their borderlands, all the soldiers on the borderlands of the empire recalled instantly to try and save Rome from the barbarians. And England was left to its own resources. And the people who lived in England at the time were what we call now the Welsh people because the Roman army didn't like having indigenous peoples in as part of their army. So they never trained the local people. And when they left, well, then England was wide open to invasion, which came eventually from the Vikings and the Saxons. And the, the, the folk of England escaped up into the hills of Wales, and that's where they hid, because they could not defend themselves. And then Catholicism came to the island gradually. It came with the Romans, actually, and because we have Taylor St. Patrick in the 4th century. But anyway, they, um, it's, it's a... England's full of saints, martyrs. St. Edmund Campion called it the Isle of Saints. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Imogen Hitchings. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.